it was in 1517 that Martin Luther, after seeing the corruption of the church of his day, seeing the abuse, the lack of belief, the unbiblical theology, nailed his 95 theses to the church in Wittenberg and began what we call the Protestant Reformation. And it was from the, Luther, the work of Luther and many of the men and women who actually preceded Luther that God raised up other great reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, Turretin. But it only took about a hundred years after that for need of another kind of reformation. Uh, a group of people known as the Puritans, they got their name because they saw only a hundred years afterward that the church had become corrupted again lackadaisical, apathetic, unbelieving, unbiblical. And so the Puritans sought to reform the church of their day. And then it was only about a hundred years after that, after people from England and, and from that part of the world began to make their way into what we now call America and settle it and discover it, that there was what was known as the Great Awakening. Men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were crucial in waking up America to its need for spiritual revival, authentic Christian faith. We've even seen in, in a more recent timeline, the early 1940s, the Billy Graham Crusades. Now, I don't want to lump Billy Graham in with the men that I've just listed. Uh, his theology is very poor compared to them. But nonetheless, the radical fame and, 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 and the impact that Billy Graham had on America cannot be understated. As he went through America with his revivals. And what that showed us, what that reminds us of now today, that certainly, no matter what we might think of Billy Graham and, and some of his theology, there was a need in this country for revival. And so I bring all that up to say that the last 500 years of Christian history have proved to us that it's very easy for the Christian church at large, Christian societies at large, to fall into apathy, which eventually leads to sin, unbiblical living, unbiblical lifestyles, and even corruption. But the, we have good news in our Bible text this morning. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 12 through 21, we are going to be reminded that this need for revival, this need for reformation is not something that has only happened in the last 500 years, but that the people of God, the covenant people of God have always been tempted to fall into apathy and corruption. Long before Christ, long before Calvin or Luther or Edwards or Whitfield or Billy Graham, we have in our text a religion that needs revival. We have a religion that needs reformation. If you would read with me in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 12 through 21, for these are the very words of God. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would, say, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The primary concern of our text this morning is to juxtapose, and when we talk about a juxtaposition, that means a contrast. When you contrast, not necessarily compare and find the similarities, but you find the differences. You contrast two things. And the text is interested in juxtaposing the corruption of the priests with the righteousness of the up-and-coming priest. We want to see the corruption of the leaders of Israel, and then it immediately jumps to remind us of the righteousness and the hope of the future leader of Israel. And so we have this great comparison, this great juxtaposition, and it's going to continue even into the text next week, where we're going to learn about these corrupt priests ministering in the temple are far more corrupt than even this text tells us. So God wants us to see, he wants us to compare, to contrast, if you will, the corruption of the priests with the righteousness of Samuel and his family. And as we do this juxtaposition, we are going to be able to find some very hopeful and encouraging things for us even in our day. Look at with me though, let's just break down the text and make sure we understand what's happening here. Verse 12 starts off, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. We've been introduced to these sons already in chapter 1, so we know their names, Eli, or forgive me, not Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were, their father Eli was the high priest and they were the ministering priests under him. And we are told here that they were worthless men. Your Bible might say something slightly different, worthless men or corrupt men. Uh, if you have a King James, it goes with the more literal rendition or a new King James, which actually says sons of the devil. But no matter what your translation says, no matter which particular phrasing it goes with, the point is, is they're not good. Right? The Bible is not trying to compliment these men right now. The men who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the people of Israel are corrupt and worthless. And what's even worse than that? What does the text tell us about them? They don't even know the Lord. We have unbelievers ministering the sacraments and ceremonies of a holy God. Isn't that terrifying? Unfortunately, I don't think that we can necessarily say our day and age isn't the same. Some of our country's most popular pastors, I question their salvation regularly and I believe I have good biblical reasons to do so. I'm not sure some of the country's leading most famous pastors know the Lord at all. 
Unfortunately, it is not uncommon for unbelievers to be ministering on behalf of God. These were worthless, evil men who did not know the Lord. Now, the text is going to begin to just give us a small taste of the kind of corruption that would justify this harsh claim in verse 12, that they are worthless men. It says, beginning in verse 13, that this was their custom with the people. This was the custom of the priests with the people, was that any man who offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, whatever they were using to cook, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, the reason this is a corruption is because the law of God was very clear what portion of the sacrifices the priests were allowed to take. So the way the law of God in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy set up was that when people would come and bring food sacrifices, the priests were allowed to take some of that as payment for their work. And this is why, just as a side note, Paul in the New Testament brings this up two different times to justify the idea of why pastors deserve to be paid. And Paul essentially says, we paid the priests in the Old Testament, like we gave them food, we, we gave them from our, our possessions so that they could get their living off of their work. And Paul says, so you should do that with pastors as well. So this was essentially their paycheck. This was how you paid the priests for their work. You, they would get a portion of the sacrifices that you would bring. But the law was very clear as to what uh, portion you were to give the priests. And the law, there were many different kinds of sacrifices and the priests would get a breast and a thigh from certain sacrifices. So the law said, yeah, the priest does get some of your meat, but the law was very clear which meat and how much meat. But these priests didn't see it that way. I don't know what their problem with the law was. Maybe they weren't getting the, the best cuts. They weren't getting, you know, the, they weren't getting prime rib. So maybe they wanted better cuts, or maybe it just wasn't enough for them. Maybe they just wanted more. But for whatever reason, they decided to disregard the law of Moses and come up with their own system of determining what we're going to get. And they would have a servant with a big old fork just pull up as much as he could and say, okay, this belongs to the priest. This was just an abject rejection of biblical law. And that wasn't where they stopped. Verse 15 Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So the point there is also in the Old Testament law, it was very clear that all the fat on all the sacrificial meat, including what the priest would take, the fat would need to be burned. It would need to be cooked as a, the Bible calls it, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So we see a second way in which they have just disregarded the law of Moses. And by the way, clearly some of the people sacrificing understood this. They understood that the law required them to burn the fat. And that's why they say in verse 16, And if the man said to him, let, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So the people would come and say, listen, we just want to honor the law of Moses. Let us do the way the law prescribes and you can have as much as you want. And not only would they not let them honor the law of Moses, they, they threatened them physically if they refused to break God's law. This is great corruption. But isn't there a small little reminder in here of how important it is for every Christian to know their Bible? Isn't it 
you know, I, I just, I love that there were some people there who knew the law well enough to say, listen, you're the priests, I respect you, but this is not what God commanded of us. The easiest way for you to not fall prey to spiritual abuse, to men who would use their authority as ministers of the word of God to manipulate you and trick you and abuse you is to know your Bible. This was the very issue of the Reformation. The, the, the first thing that began Martin Luther's issues was not so much theological. There was some theological errors, and as his theology grew, then it became a very theological issue. But one of his primary issues was not so much the theology of the church, it was the corruption of the leaders. He, he went into a city and he saw it was priests and bishops and cardinals who were sexually impure, adulterers, thieves and liars. And he said, these men are corrupt and they're supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be our spiritual authorities. And what he and many men before him recognized is the church is still speaking Latin and the people don't know Latin. So there's no way for the people to open up their Bibles and say, guys, I think something's wrong here. Martin Luther was able to read his Bible. Calvin was able to read his Bible. That's why they were able to lead in a reformation saying, guys, something has gone way wrong. The best way to protect yourself from spiritual abuse is to know your Bible. But back to the point we see in this text, the priests ministering in the temple were greatly corrupted. And the text tells us what is probably fairly obvious to us, but nonetheless is very important. The text summarizes for us, how would we summarize their offense? What is it that they have done that is so offensive? Verse 17 tells us, The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Why? For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. In other words, what the Bible is telling us here is these are men who profane sacred things. They profane the sacred. And I think we see a hint in this text that profanation of God's religion is far worse than pure idolatry. I would argue and I firmly believe that to profane God is far worse than to just merely reject him. What do I mean by that? It's one thing to not be a Christian. That's bad, that's sad, that's sinful. It breaks our heart. We want people to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want people to be forgiven of their sins. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ, to not submit to him is sinful and has eternal consequences. So I'm, don't by any means hear me saying that's not a big deal, because it is. But I have so much more respect for the person who just says, listen, I hear your Christianity, I don't want it. I have so much more respect for those people than for the people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe what you believe, but then they go around and utterly twist and distort and ruin the faith. And in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, they promote godless ideologies, godless practices, and they turn the church of God into a clown show. And they dress what's supposed to be the bride of Christ up, and they parade her around as if she's something that she's not. When we come in here and we claim the Bible, yeah, we're Christians, but we essentially reject the vast majority of things the Bible teaches because, well, our sexual ethics have developed. Yeah, the Bible is a very patriarchal book, but we're in more of an egalitarian society and we're going to push people away, so we're going to... That's profanation. Listen, if you don't want to be a Christian, that's fine, but don't bear the name, just leave. 
It is a terrible thing to profane that which is sacred. And that's what these men have done. These men have not just said, listen, we don't believe in Yahweh. We want to go be pagans. They're pretending to be priests. They're pretending to represent the Lord. They're still administering the sacred sacraments of the Lord, but they are profaning them and ruining them. By the way, the Bible talks, not only can this happen in our own day and age, but it can even happen in a spiritual sense. What do I mean by that? In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews talks about how much worse it is for a person who falls away from the faith to receive judgment than a person who was never a believer at all. Hebrews chapter 10 describes that as trampling on the blood of Christ. Taking the blood of the covenant and stepping on it. Unbelievers, just, just people who just, you know, born and raised in, in the Middle East in an Islamic home and die and face the Lord in judgment. Those are not people who, as Hebrews says, took the blood of the covenant and trampled on it. But apostates have done that. The Lord takes profaning his sacred religion seriously. And when this begins to happen, the church knows it's in need of revival. We're in need of reformation. The sacred and holy things of God have been profaned. And so what God does for us in this text is after telling us of this great sin, the great horrible spiritual condition of Israel in verse 17, he just immediately transitions right into some hope, some good news. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. What is that? If you read the Old Testament law, that's actually what the priestly garments were supposed to wear. So what this is telling us is Samuel, even as a very young boy, is already a priest, technically. Is to the best of his abilities, he's already fulfilling that role. So we've got Hophni and Phineas distorting and ruining the sacred religion, but we have this small glimmer of hope because there's a young priest coming up behind them and he's, a, he's one of the good guys. And not only is he good, but he's good primarily because of his faithful family, because of his parents. And so they bring them, the author brings them back in verse 19. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. This robe was also something ordained in the Old Testament for the priest to wear. But the problem is when you have a very young priest, he's getting bigger every year. He outgrows his robe. So he's got a good mama. Who every year she goes to this, she makes him a new one. She makes him one that fits. And every year that they go up and she gets to see her son, she brings him a new robe which fits. And so what is this text highlighting for us? It's subtly reminding us the piety of Samuel's family. While the, many of the rest of Israel was corrupted, while the religious priests were corrupted, Han or Samuel's family was not. They were doing their yearly sacrifice. They're honoring their vow. They're taking care of their son. We're supposed to see here the piety and the godliness of Samuel and his family. And Eli recognized it too. Eli recognized their piety. He recognized this great sacrifice that they made in giving their son. And so here's what Eli does for them. Verse 20, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. So what Eli has done is Eli has said, this was such a great sacrifice. You prayed for this child. You've been without child and you finally got one. And what did you do? You gave him to us. So Eli, as their minister before God, 
stands in the gap as their mediator and prays on their behalf that the Lord would reward them for this sacrifice. And the Lord listens. Verse 21, Indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. So the barren woman who had Samuel and gave him up now has five children at home. And there's another really important point here too. Because what we're going to see is that it's not just Phineas and Hophni who are corrupt, but the Bible doesn't have good things to say about Eli as well. In many ways, you could sort of logically reason and logically deduce that it is because of Eli and his poor leadership that his sons are so out of control. But nevertheless, even though we have an, an, a wicked priest who has wicked priestly sons and a corrupt sacrificial system, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, God only honors Hannah's prayer once it has Eli's blessing. Isn't that amazing? What I think is happening here is the text is reminding us that the office is still sacred to God even if the person who occupies it is not doing it well. God is still blessing the mediatorial role of Eli even though he doesn't deserve to be there. And here's why that's very important even today. There's an interesting debate that has always gone on in some of the early, well not always, but especially in the early stages of the church. There was this huge debate over what we call the efficacy of the sacraments if the person who administered them proves to not be such a good guy. Now that's kind of religious language. What, is it, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Let's say that someone in here doesn't know the Lord and tomorrow you come to faith in Christ and so you want to be baptized and so we as a church baptize you and me, I baptize you with these very hands. And then let's say two months from now it comes out that I'm not at all who you all thought I was. That I've been up to some horrible sin. That I'm a scoundrel, a cheat, a liar, and an unbeliever. I'm a wicked man who doesn't know the Lord. Let's, whatever it might be, that comes to light. Here's the question for you. Does your baptism count? Was that a valid baptism even though that wicked, terrible, awful pastor baptized you? He wasn't even a believer when he baptized you. That's a fake baptism, right? Well, the church has debated this. We don't have a unanimous agreement on this, but by and large, most people would say, no, the baptism still counts. And I agree with that, and I think we see that here. Eli was a wicked man, but his prayer was still honored. His prayer, he, his office was still efficacious. It was still working. God can work through the office even if the person in it is corrupt. So I would say even if I end up being a lousy guy, our weekly table is still sacred and efficacious. And your baptism is still sacred and efficacious. So Samuel, the, the end of verse 17, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we have our great juxtaposition. Samuel, the up-and-coming priest versus the corrupt and wicked priests. The piety of Samuel's family versus the corruption of the Israelite religious system. And as the text compares these two different states, I think we learn something important about this idea of reformation. Revival. I think we learn a couple important things. And the first thing I want us to learn today, the first thing I want our attention to be drawn to, is that it is God who brings about reformation. It is God who brings about reformation. Because you see, what this text is doing for us is that in the midst of all this corruption and calamity, we are being reminded that God, even though it's subtle, and even though it's patient, even though it's behind the scenes, God is up to something here. 
God is establishing and raising Samuel. And we saw all from chapter 1 to here that God has been intricately, providentially working in Samuel's life and bringing Samuel to this point. Samuel, I don't mean to be too much of a spoiler, but is going to help bring a restoration, a reformation to the religious system. And we've seen so far that it is God who is actually doing this through him. It is God working behind the scenes and bringing them the hero that they need. He is sort of a great reformer, but the text is very clear. He didn't just pop up out of nowhere. And the reason I think this is so important for us is because I want you to remember that we have the privilege of looking at this from Scripture many thousands of years later. We're able to see because the Holy Spirit has inspired men to give us this very poetic details. We're able to see like, okay, yeah, things are bad, but God's doing something here. But I would recall you to remind that the the Israeli people living in this day did not see that. All they saw was the corruption. And then every year maybe they saw noticed some little random boy in the temple they'd never seen before. They didn't see this beautiful story, this tapestry that has been unfolding before our eyes for four or five weeks, however long it's been. They didn't see that. They just looked at their culture and their religious system and said, it's all gone. It's ruined. And apparently God doesn't care. What's God doing? Every year we go up and the priests take their fork and steal our food and they refuse to boil the fat. And we're going to find out next week they're sleeping with women. They're adulterers. And what is God doing? Where is he? They don't know. But we, hindsight is twenty twenty. we see, we know. So here's why that's so important. Because I think in our day and age, isn't it easy for us to think that too? I mean, I look at the state of the evangelical church in America and it's easy to think, God has abandoned us. God has just forsaken us. Where, where is he? And I look at uh, the state of our nation. And our division and, and what's happening with, 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 with private companies, private media companies and the government. And just, it, doesn't it just seem like God is nowhere to be found here? But I would encourage us to take by faith what we're learning from this text. He's up to something. He's working behind the scenes. He doesn't abandon his people. He brings reformation. Now, God is much more patient than we are. I'm sure they would have wished Samuel would have grown at twice the pace of a normal person. But no, Israel had to wait for Samuel to grow up and mature for Reformation to happen. So maybe we're in a place now, we want Reformation right now. But God is patient. Even the Protestant Reformation, it wasn't like just Luther came out of nowhere, boom, started and everything was fixed. There were many men and many women fighting for that Reformation before him. Men who died for Reformation before him. God had been patiently working and working and bringing things up. So one of the things we remember about Reformation is that it is God who brings it so we can trust him with it. We can trust that God is behind the scenes subtly and patiently preparing men and women to bring about great change when we need it. God has not abandoned his people. He has not abandoned us. It might look like it, but he has not. God is up to something. Because it is God who brings about reformation. And then the, the, the second point I think we learn about reformation revival. In other words, if, we have a, if we're desiring reform and revival in this country, these are important things we have to remember. That God is working for reformation. He is working for revival. It might be subtle. It might be patient. It might be slow. It might not be obvious. But he is working for the good of his people. 
And here's the second thing I, I think we learn. That simple faithfulness is very powerful. If you want to bring about reformation to the church, to a country, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of simply just living a faithful life. You know, we read these stories of heroes, both in secular and in Christian history, and we think that's what it takes. Like, if we want to change this country, we need to do something huge. We need some unprecedented, cataclysmic coming together. We need this massive, never-before-seen force and power and authority, and we need to fight back. And I, I've seen Christians in my own ministry, in my own life, grow very restless and frustrated with me because they're so upset with the state of the church. They're so upset with the government. They're thinking, what are you doing? And I'm thinking, I'm just trying to live a holy life, and you should too. Well, that's not enough. We can't just be holy. But I disagree. You want to know why I disagree? Because God is clearly establishing Samuel as, as having this great impact on his religion, on his church. But where did Samuel come from? He didn't come from great reformers. He just came from two parents who really loved him and really loved the Lord. What gave us Samuel? Just a faithful family. Notice, how does the text present uh, Hannah and her husband, Elkanah? Are these men behind the scenes working out a master plan to overthrow the priesthood? They're working with, with, with separate political powers. They're trying to bring, they're, they're organizing this awesome massive reformation. These are not reformers. These are not revivalists. They're just believers. And they just love God a lot. And they honor him and they obey him faithfully. And they love their son a lot. And they honor him and they treat him well and they raise him right. And it changed the world. I just got done reading. It's kind of funny. This is the third, second time I've referenced this story since I've started preaching here. I just got done reading The Hobbit. The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien is a children's book. It's actually written for children, but I love it. And there's a famous line where Gandalf is, one of the characters in the book, is talking about uh, how he chose to be kind of the hero of the story. He chose this very little creature who really doesn't have a lot of power or influence or heritage. He, he chose a nobody uh, to, rule, to, to, to win, to be the hero. And when asked why he chose him, he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, people assume that it takes great power and great authority to keep the tides of evil at bay. But I think it's actually just the small everyday acts of goodness and love that keep the enemy away. Something along those lines. And I think that's very true. I think we too often underestimate how powerful it is for us to just love the Lord and seek to obey Him. Now, am I saying that there's never a time and a place to do something extra? Am I saying it's wrong to email politicians? It's wrong to talk to you? I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that. Of course, God provides opportunities. We saw this in the Reformers and the Puritans. Sometimes God provides opportunities for people to do amazing, unique things that have a lot of influence. But I guess what I'm trying to submit to you is that you don't have to be Martin Luther to change things greatly. You don't have to be the hero of our story. You don't have to have your name go down in history to make a difference. 
We cannot underestimate the consequences of just being simple, faithful, obedient Christian families. That's all Elkanah and Hannah were trying to do. They weren't trying to change the world. They weren't trying to bring reform, radical revival to the priesthood. They were just trying to love God and obey Him and that ended up having consequences that reverberate today. You do not have to be the world's greatest theologian to help bring revival to this nation. You do not have to write the most sophisticated systematic theology the church has ever seen if you want to help bring revival to the church. You do not need to be burned at the stake. You do not have to have your name go down in history. If you want to see revival to your church, to your nation, love God and love neighbor. Be faithful and don't underestimate the consequences that might have on you, your children, those who observe you, and future generations. You can change the world by just loving God. And so I just will conclude with this question. Does not this give hope in our present circumstance? Does does this not make us wonder what God might be doing behind the scenes right now? All we see in the fog is despair and division and calamity, just like I'm sure that's all the people of Israel saw as the priests were unbelievers living in sin, ripping them off. They probably didn't see a lot of hope. But God was underneath, behind, and over that working. And so I wonder, in our present calamity and despair, what what is God maybe doing? Maybe we're on the precipice of something great here. Maybe God is using all this for the benefit of his church. Maybe God sees an American evangelical church and says they need revival, they need reformation, and I know how to bring it. Maybe that's what God is doing. This gives us great hope that God's up to something. We don't necessarily know, but he's not forsaken us. He's not abandoned us. And second, doesn't it comfort us and encourage us to know that simple faithfulness is how we're used to bring about huge change? Isn't it a relief to know that you don't have to be the next great reformer to help change your country, to help change your church? One of my favorite analogies ever used, there's an analogy a pastor once used of the soldiers at D-Day. And he talked about, imagine being a soldier on D-Day. You're lucky to even make it off the boat. And then you get onto the beach and you're hiding behind a bunker of sand. And shots, bullets, rounds are just being peppered all around you. And you have a specific mission, you have a specific goal, and you have no idea how you're going to get it done. And then the analogy goes this. Imagine that one of the generals, I don't know military terms, so I apologize if I'm not making sense to you with military backgrounds. But let's say one of the generals had, you know, Eisenhower's, you know, let's say they had the, this principle of war, their, their ultimate strategy, this big game plan. And one of the pages ripped off and blew down the, in the wind and it stuck under your boot, the very last page. And you read it, you open it, and the very last page talks about occupying Berlin and winning the war. And you're looking at it from your bunker, thinking, how are we going to take Berlin? I can't even get past my bunker. What on earth are these people talking about winning the war? I can't even get past my bunker. 
But what is that person forgetting? It's the, the pastor in the analogy said. He's forgetting this, that there are grand forces afoot. He's not the only soldier. He's not the only part of their strategy. But there is a, there is a strategy here. There is a plan here. And there are pieces and there are operations and all of these things are moving. And so the soldier's job is just be faithful at your post. Where has, where has the army put you? Be faithful there. We're not asking you to win the war. We're not asking you to put the United States on your back and win the war. Just be faithful at your post. And guess what happens when every single soldier is just faithful where he's been planted? You win the war. You win the war. You don't need to be Captain America. Just, just be faithful where God put you. And believe that there are grand forces afoot. That there is a plan, that there is a strategy, that there are believers all over this world that God is working through. So if you're discouraged about the state of our country, if you're discouraged about the state of the Christian church in America, then what's your job? Be faithful at your post. No one's asking you to change America. Be faithful at your post. You be faithful what the Lord has entrusted you with and then you do not underestimate, don't you dare underestimate the kind of consequences that might have. Hannah and Elkanah were simply faithful with what God gave them and they changed Israel. Israel. 